to uh, get right into our study tonight, and I hope you have your Bible at hand because we have many scriptures to examine. We are beginning a new series of studies tonight. As you know, we have been studying verse by verse through many books of the Bible. We will, of course, continue that later on. It uh, is my long-range goal for us to study the entire Bible on a verse-by-verse basis. That's going to take a lot of Wednesday nights, of course. But uh, we just finished the book of 2 Timothy, and uh, before we go into another book, studying on a verse-by-verse basis, I would like first for us to take a few Wednesday nights and study another subject, which I believe is very crucial uh, at this time. Now, we have been uh, mentioning to you, uh, sometimes quite in passing and sometimes in more depth, in various sermons, messages, and lessons that we have taught here in the past several months, um, the importance of the Word of God, the importance particularly of knowing what God's Word is. And by that, I mean what Bible we use. And I've said to you several times that we use the King James Version and believe in the King James Version, um, and we don't go along with the new translations and versions. I've mentioned some things about that, and from time to time, I've said things a, a little bit more in depth maybe than other times. But I want us now to take some uh, Bible study nights and study this subject. I want you to know where we stand and to have a firm footing yourself to know why we take this stand. And, of course, there's many, many reasons why we do. But um, uh, I was very pleased. I was telling a couple of folks today here around the church, I was uh, pleased to find out yesterday I'd written an article back several weeks ago, maybe even a few months ago now, called why I use the King James Version of the Bible, and uh, I had submitted that to Brother Calvin Rigdon, who's our editor-in-chief, and I found out yesterday that they're putting it in the December Herald. I was very pleased about that because I know that um, even among us, now when we're not immune from this problem, there is a tendency to belittle the King James Version and to um, get into the more modern versions and to think that uh, they're just as good as, if not better than, the KJV and so forth. And um, I want to share with you much more in depth than that brief little article can do. That's just a few little words. But I want to share with you in depth why I take this stand. So beginning tonight, we're going to conduct a series of lessons called Why We Use the King James Version. And hopefully at the end of it, you will understand why we do that and hopefully be of the same persuasion, which I feel very strongly about it. There was a well-known Christian writer, philosopher, thinker of the 50s and 60s. He passed away in the early 60s by the name of C.S. Lewis. Now, C.S. Lewis was just a human being, of course, and made no claims to infallibility, and neither do I for him, but he made a statement that I want to give you tonight at the outset and make some applications about this subject at hand. Maybe you've heard this statement. C.S. Lewis said concerning Jesus Christ, he is one of three things. He said Jesus Christ was either a liar or a lunatic or he is the Lord. Now, that was a very perceptive statement on C.S. Lewis's part because uh, there is no room when we come to identifying who Jesus was, there is no room for middle ground. You can't say, as many people try to say, he was a good man, but not the Lord God. 
You can't say he was a great prophet, but not God manifest in the flesh. You can't say anything like that. There's no room for middle ground because he was either who he said he was or he wasn't, one or the other. He did not claim to be a prophet. He didn't claim to be a good guy. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the Lord of glory. He claimed to be the king. Now, if he wasn't, what was he? If I said to you here tonight, I'm the president of the United States, you would know one of three things. And well, you would know two things, because you know that I'm not. You'd know that I'm either lying to you or I've, I've just gone off my rocker, one or the other. See, what I'm saying to you, there's no, there's no room to say, well, he thinks he's the president, but you know, really, he's a good guy. I mean, you know, he's all right. There's no room for that. I've either got to be who I say I am or I'm a liar or I'm mistaken uh, and maybe a little loony, you see. So C.S. Lewis made that statement. I, uh, I heard a radio program back maybe two or three years ago where a certain pastor was on a panel over KMOX with some other clergymen, including a Jewish rabbi. And this uh, Protestant pastor made this statement. He said Jesus Christ was either a liar or he was a lunatic or he was the Lord. Well, the Jewish rabbi said, well, we don't believe those are the only alternatives. <laughs> but there are no other alternatives because of who Jesus claimed to be. If he was not that, then he was wrong and he was mistaken. Of course, we believe he was and is the Lord of glory. We believe he was God manifest in the flesh. But I made that statement to go a step further because the same thing is true of the Bible. There is no room for middle ground in this matter of is the Bible the Word of God. The Bible is either the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God or it's the fallible Word of men, one or the other. It cannot be just a good literature book like most of the educational world. You know, they'll, they'll have a course in Bible and literature. It can't be just good literature because it doesn't claim to be good literature. It claims to be the inspired infallible word of God if it isn't it's not good literature it's a pack of lies amen it's not just the word of men if it's not the word of God because it would be the word of men who were liars because they said it was something else you see what I'm telling you we only have really two choices we either believe it or we don't there's no middle ground to prance around on and say we think that maybe it's okay and maybe some parts of it are good or so forth, because this book is full of statements like, Thus saith the Lord, and God said, and so forth. So it's either God's word or it isn't. Of course, we believe it's God's word. But the first issue that I want us to deal with in this series of studies is this. What does the Bible say about itself? Now, that is the first issue. What does the Bible claim to be? What are the statements inside this book about the nature of the book itself? Hope you've got your Bible there because we're going to look at a lot of scriptures and the first thing we're going to consider tonight is the testimony of Jesus. If you would look please to begin with at Mark 12 and 26. Mark 12 and 26. 
We're going to be looking at some verses tonight that perhaps you've never thought of in the vein that we're going to examine them, but I believe you'll see it after we uh, take a look at them. Mark 12, 26 reads, and, and these are the words of Jesus, And as touching the dead that they rise, have ye not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? Now, what is Jesus saying in that statement? Jesus is saying that Moses, that there was a real, first of all, he's saying there was a real man by the name of Moses. Maybe you didn't know anybody doubted that, but modern higher criticism doubts that. Jesus says there was a man by the name of Moses, and he wrote the book that is attributed to him. Now, that's an important statement, as we'll see in just a moment. Further, Jesus says, that the words that were spoken to him out of the bush were the words of God. See that? Out of the bush, God spake unto him, saying, and so forth. So Jesus recognizes Moses as the author of the book attributed to him and says the words that were spoken out of the bush were the words of God. Now look in John. Moses, as you know, these are talking, this is talking about the earliest book in the Bible. John 5, 39. Jesus talking again. He says, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. I receive not honor from men, but I know you that ye have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even who? Moses in whom ye trust. Now follow carefully. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he, what? Wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? Now what has Jesus just said? Jesus has just said that the books attributed to Moses were actually written by Moses. How does that differ from modern so-called higher criticism? Back in about the year 1700 or thereabouts, in Germany, a school of biblical criticism arose, and these men were rationalists. They didn't believe anything was supernatural. They didn't believe there was such a thing as supernatural. They didn't believe there was a man by the name of Moses. So they came up with their own theory to describe how the book was written. The books of Moses were written. It's called the J-E-D-P theory. Say, what on earth does that mean, Brother Seagrave? Well, by this they meant there were different writers who compiled the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Some of them were called J because they used Jehovah. Some were called E because they used Elohim, names for God now, and so forth. But they said that the books were a compilation of the writings of different men. Furthermore, these men in the 1700s said, 
Moses could not have written those books because writing was not developed that early in civilization. Now, of course, subsequent archaeological work has proven that writing was uh, developed that early in civilization, um, which, of course, those fellows in 1700 didn't know. But what I'm saying to you is this. Contrary to this J-E-D-P theory of multiple authors of the Pentateuch, Jesus said, Moses wrote these things. In other words, Moses wrote them with his own hand. It was Moses, Jesus said, who wrote the books. Now, we're studying right now what does the Bible say about itself. If we believe in Jesus, we've got to believe his testimony. He testified that Moses was a real man who wrote real books. If you believe in Jesus, you've got to believe in Moses. All right, let's take a look at another verse. Luke 20, 42 through 44. Luke chapter 20, 42 through 44 reads, and again Jesus speaking, and David himself saith in the book of Psalms, the Lord said unto my Lord, Set thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. What has Jesus just said? He has said there was a real man by the name of David, and he wrote Psalms. You see that? Very clear and simple. Again, if you believe Jesus, you must believe his testimony about David writing the Psalms. If you'll look in Matthew 24 and 15. Matthew 24, 15, Jesus speaking, says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. What has Jesus just done? He has said there was a man by the name of Daniel. He wrote a book that bears his name. See, again, Jesus is uh, giving his approval to these Old Testament writings when he quotes from them. All right, let's take a look at um, Mark chapter 12 and verse 36. Mark 12 and 36. Jesus says, For David himself said, By the Holy Ghost, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. What has Jesus just said? Jesus said that the writings of David were inspired by the Holy Ghost. David didn't just dream it up, but the Holy Ghost spoke through him, Jesus said, even before we get to the epistles and read those well-known scriptures. Let's look at John 10 and 35. John chapter 10, verse 35. Jesus says, If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came... And the scripture cannot be broken. What did Jesus just say? He just said that the scripture stands as a unit that cannot be broken. All right. Let's take a look at Matthew 5.18. Matthew 5.18, Jesus says, for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. What has he said? 
Jesus says it is more likely that the entire heaven and the earth will disintegrate than that the very smallest, minute particle of the scripture shall pass away. Not even a jot or a tittle, and those are just very little, almost like punctuation marks. Notice the, notice the parallel. Wouldn't it be a statement if I had a book, any book, written by anybody, and I said to you, the universe will disintegrate and the earth will cease to be before one period or one exclamation mark vanishes out of this book. Now, that'd be quite a statement, wouldn't it? That's what Jesus said. He was giving us there the, the elements of the preservation of the word of God. It is more permanent than the heavens and the earth because the heavens and the earth will pass away someday, but his word will never pass away. Praise God. Now, let's take a look at a section of scriptures, also in Matthew 7 and 12, and we'll look in Luke 16, 31, and we'll look in Luke 24 and 44. First of all, Matthew 7 and 12. Jesus says, Therefore... All things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. He's referring now to what we call the Old Testament. He identifies it here as the law and the prophets. Look in Luke 16, 31. He says, And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Here he, he equates Moses, you see, with the Old Testament and the law and the prophets. In Luke 24, 44, he says, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Now, I don't know, folks, if, if I'm making myself real clear here. I'm going to try to. In the day of Jesus, the Hebrew Old Testament was identical to the Old Testament we have now. What we have is called the Masoretic text. It's identical. In fact, in uh, about 19... In the 1950s and maybe the early 60s, there was a Jewish man by the name of... Yadin, or Yadin, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. I remember being at the place where these discoveries happened back in 1974. When we went over to Israel, we toured Masada. Maybe you've heard about Masada. And this uh, gentleman, who is an archaeologist and quite highly placed in the Israeli government, made a discovery when they were first doing the archaeological work on Masada back in the 50s. They discovered there, in fact, it was the first discovery of that type at that time, and they discovered ancient Hebrew Old Testament scrolls still intact that they knew definitely could not have been any later than 73 A.D. because 73 A.D. is when Masada was overthrown by the Romans. See, Masada is a flat mountaintop down near the Dead Sea, and the, the uh, Jewish zealots, had fled there from the, from the Roman invaders of Jerusalem. And they camped out on top of the mountain. It, it had been a place that Herod had built for his own private uh, palace, and he would go there for, to get away from it, all that sort of thing. A very plush, even today, you can see the colors in the uh, tile with the, the, the baths that they had arranged and all that sort of thing. But the Jewish zealots 
staked out there, and they didn't give up until about three years after Rome fell, uh, Jerusalem fell to the Romans. But finally, Masada was destroyed, and the people, uh, when the Romans got to the top of the mountain, they discovered the Jewish zealots had committed suicide rather than be taken by the Romans. There were about three people, I think a couple of women and uh, two or three children left that had not committed suicide, but had hid among the stuff, and then they were there when the Romans came. But anyway, when the archaeological work began to be done, they found um, copies and remnants of Old Testament scrolls that could not date any later than 73 because that's when the thing was overthrown. But really, they probably dated, the scholars say, 20 or 30 years before that. What I'm telling you is this. These scrolls discovered there at Masada, uh, Masada rather, dated probably about 43 to 53 A.D. Or they could have dated a little bit earlier than that. Now, you know, of course, approximately when Jesus was on the earth, don't you? He was crucified approximately 33 A.D. So what we're saying here is that the text of the Old Testament that was used when Jesus was on the earth and was preserved here at Masada was found to be virtually identical to the Hebrew Old Testament that we have now 2,000 years later. So, now Jesus gave his approval to this. Remember, we just read. He talks about the Moses and the law and the prophets and says Daniel said and David said and Moses said and Moses wrote and he quotes from that and accepts it. He never cast any doubt upon it whatsoever. So Jesus being God manifest in the flesh gives his divine stamp of approval to the Hebrew Old Testament as we have it today in the King James Version. Now not in some of the more modern versions as we'll talk about later but in the King James Version. All right. Let's take a look now at uh, what Jesus said about the New Testament in uh, John chapter 16. John 16 and uh, verses 12 and 13. Now, of course, the New Testament had not been written when Jesus made this statement. But notice what he said. He says, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Now, what has Jesus just done? In advance, he has said, I have some more things you need to know, but you're not ready for them now. But he says, when the Spirit of truth comes, the Holy Spirit, he will tell you these things. See? He is the spirit of truth. In advance, Jesus puts his stamp of approval upon what would become to be known the New Testament by saying it will be inspired by the spirit of truth. Further, if you'll look in John 14 and verse 26. Jesus says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Say, now, Brother Seagraves, how could those disciples remember exactly word for word what Jesus said? Well, they couldn't on their own. 
So Jesus said, the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of truth, the Comforter, He will bring everything that I have said to your remembrance. And He will teach you all additional things that you need to know. Again, in advance, Jesus was saying, the things that you write, fellas, saying this to his disciples, will be inspired of God. They will be accurate. They will be the truth. And all of that was said by him before one word of it was written. Now, do you begin to see how all of this hinges upon who Jesus Christ is? You see? Because if Jesus Christ were just a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker, his word wouldn't mean too much. But if he was God manifest in the flesh, his word was the word of God and was infallible and meant everything. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself now, but this is one reason why the new version makes such a direct attack on the divinity of Jesus. For example, in 1 Timothy 3.16, where the Bible says God was manifest in the flesh. But your new versions don't say that. And many other places, likewise, we'll talk about as this study goes on. You see, if you can destroy the credibility of Jesus, you have hit a major blow at the credibility of the Bible. But, of course, we believe that he was God manifest in the flesh. One more thing here on Jesus' testimony. In John 12, 48, John chapter 12 and verse 48, notice how serious Jesus' words were. Jesus says, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. In other words, rejecting Jesus' words was a matter of sealing your own fate. His words were, of course, the word of God. Now, let's look for a few moments at the testimony of the Old Testament and see what it has to say about the Bible. Let's look, and you'll notice that we looked at some of these verses a few weeks ago, but we must hit them again tonight to make our study complete. Deuteronomy 4 and 2. The Lord now is speaking through Moses, who was a real man who wrote these words with his own hand. And in Deuteronomy 4, 2, he says, Ye shall not add unto the word which I command ye, neither shall ye diminish aught from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. God says through Moses, don't add one word to what I say and don't take one word away. Why? Well, it's right there in verse 2. He says if you add a word or take away a word, you won't be keeping my commandments. You see that there? He says you must keep it as it is if you want to keep my commandments. Next, Proverbs 30, 5 and 6. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 reads, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. In other words, God's words being pure, they don't need any tampering with by human beings. And if you add one word to his word, you're lying. Because he didn't say what you said he said. See? 
All right. Let's take a look at um, Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. Now notice this next verse carefully. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Amen. Now somebody says, yes, God's words were pure when they were first spoken, but we don't know what he said now. We've lost the, the original manuscripts, and it's been so many years. How could we possibly know what he said? Listen, folks. If God is God, and of course he is God, when he made a statement like he made in verse 7, it was going to come to pass. The word of God said that his words would be preserved and kept from that generation forever. Hallelujah. So we do have his word somewhere. We know exactly what he said somewhere. And of course, we believe we know where. Psalm 138 and verse 2. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. With God, his word is exalted even above the high exaltation of his name. You can't separate God from his word. You can't separate God from his name. You certainly can't separate him from his word. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 40 and verse 8. The word says, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Hallelujah. That's a pretty long time, isn't it? And then one final verse here, Psalm 119 and verse 89. Psalm 119 verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven settled that means there's no changing it no adapting it no revising it no paraphrasing it god's word notice folks now we're going to get to this later if, if not tonight next week forever god's word is settled not his ideas not his concepts his word is settled in heaven and besides all of these verses we just looked at thousands of times in the old testament it says Thus saith the Lord, and the word of the Lord came and said, or, and God said, and so forth. What I'm trying to establish now, folks, is what does the Bible say about itself? Jesus says it's the word of God inspired of the Holy Ghost. The Old Testament says it is the word of God settled forever. It'll never pass away. It's always going to be preserved, and so forth. Let's take a look now at the testimony of the New Testament. We're going to go first to a very well-known scripture, 1 Timothy 3 and 16. 1 Timothy 3, 16. I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 3, 16. 
All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, notice the word given by inspiration. The word inspiration literally means God-breathed. In other words, all Scripture is God-breathed. It originated with God, not with man. Scripture is not man's word about God. It is God's word to man, breathed out from God, inspired by God. Second Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Notice this first. The will of men had nothing to do with the writing of Scripture. There was no writer who said, I think I'll write a book about God today. Or, I think I'll write some nice Scripture today. Isaiah didn't get up and say, I think I'll write a book of the Bible today. It did not come by the will of men. Rather, now, I'm going to read a word into this verse, and I want you to see if you catch, I know all of you are sharp, see if you catch which word it is. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved on by the Holy Ghost. Did I do anything wrong? on. But you know what? Almost every time you hear that verse quoted, you will hear it quoted, holy men of God spake as they were moved on by the Holy Ghost. You will even find it that way in writing, in publications. It does not say moved on, it says moved. Do you, can you tell any difference? There's a big difference. The word moved there in, in the Greek language is the same kind of a word that signifies to be carried along like a sailboat is carried along by the wind blowing in its sails. Holy men of God did not speak as they were moved on by the Holy Ghost, but as the Holy Ghost moved them in a certain direction. In other words, the Holy Ghost was in control. They weren't the ones who were deciding what to write or what not to write. It was the Holy Ghost doing the moving of them. Okay, let's look at Acts 7 and 38. <clears throat> this is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. Notice the words, lively oracles. Oracles, of course, referring to writing. Why did, did uh, Stephen say they were lively oracles? The word means, folks, they were living. They were alive. He says the word that God gave to us, the words were alive, living words. Now, to see this further borne out, let's look in Hebrews 4. 12 and 13. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 4, 
verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, you know what? A lot of times when you hear those verses quoted, you hear them quoted as if it were speaking of God himself. You hear people say things about God being a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart and so forth. Well, he is, of course. But these verses, look carefully. These verses are giving personification to the Word of God the same qualities that would be given to a living person. In other words, it says, first of all, it's quick. That means it's alive. It says it has the power to pierce, the power to divide, the power to discern, as well as being able to see and to perceive and to judge. All of that is attributed to the Word of God. Let me tell you, this is a lively book. In fact, these words in this book are alive. They're not like the words in any other book that's ever been written. These words live. Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life in John chapter 6. Praise God. That's why you can speak some of these words and things happen. Because they're living words. Now, Let's uh, take a look at Romans 3 and 2. <clears throat> See who the Lord committed his word to in the Old Testament for safekeeping. Romans 3 and 2, uh, verse 1 says, What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. God committed his word in the Old Testament to the safekeeping of the Jews. We're not going to go in tonight to how they preserved it. It's a fascinating story. Maybe we'll get to that sometime in the future. Some of the students in Brother Baxter's Bible class may know some of the details about how God preserved his word. Just briefly, things like uh, the scribes would count every letter. And not only that, they would count how many times every letter of the alphabet appeared. They knew exactly what the middle letter of the book was. And they didn't take any of these things lightly. When they got to the end of it, if there was any mistakes, out it went. It had to match up precisely to the letter, the manuscript they were copying from. Nothing slipshod about it. All right, now let's take a look at something that's fascinating. 1 Corinthians 14, 37. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37. This is Paul talking now. Paul is just finishing up writing a book, 1 Corinthians. And Paul says in verse 37, If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. What does the Bible say about itself? Paul says, This that I'm writing to you right now, these are the commandments of the Lord. These are God's commandments. These are not just my personal opinion. This is not just a nice, friendly letter I'm writing you. These are God's commandments to you. That's important, especially in 1 Corinthians, because so many people 
as I mentioned in, in the book that I wrote on women's hair in 1 Corinthians 11. Many people say, well, you know, that's just tradition. Or that's just was culture at that time. Paul said, the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. It's not just culture of the day or whatever. This is God's word to you. Now, Revelation 22, 18, and 19. <clears throat> Revelation 22, 18, and 19. This is John now speaking. He's just about to close out his book and the Bible. He says in verse 18, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. What's John saying? He's saying this is the word of God. He says if you add one word or take away one word, you've had it. That's it. He said it is so serious. Folks, grasp how serious this is. If you subtract one word or add one word, it is to your eternal destiny that you're operating and acting on. You need to know that. We're not talking about a light thing here tonight. When we talk about new versions and translations, we're not talking about something just a matter of opinion or something that uh, we think might possibly be true. If there is any translation or version that takes away one word or adds a word, it is wrong. Amen. Now, we're going to get to that a little more specifically a few minutes later. Let's take a look in Second Peter 3, 15 and 16. Let's see what Peter had to say about the New Testament. Second Peter 3, 15 and 16. He says, And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written to you. What's he talking about? He's talking about Paul's letters. You got that in mind? Now notice verse 16. As also in all his epistles, all of them, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. What has Peter just said? He has said that every book that Paul has written is classified scripture just as much as any other book of the Bible. That's what he says. He says they rest them as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Let's take a look at um, 1 Timothy 5.18. First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 18. Paul writing now, he says, For the Scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. Now, who knows where that appears? I just want testaments, all I mean. Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. But he says, And the laborer is worthy of his reward. Where does that appear? Chapter 10 and verse 7. Luke 10 and 7, where Jesus says, And in the same house remain eating and drinking such things as they give, 
for the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. And that's the only place in Scripture that appears. What has Paul just said? Paul has just said the Gospels are every, much as, uh, every bit as much Scripture as the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy because he quotes from Jesus' statements as found in the book of Luke. This is what we call, folks, the internal testimony. What is it saying about itself? Now, what have we done so far? We've said, what did Jesus say about it? He said it was the inspired word of God, both Old Testament and New. He gave his stamp of approval beforehand on the New Testament. What did the Old Testament say about it? The Old Testament proclaims to be the divinely inspired, infallible Word of God that will endure forever and that God will always preserve. What does the New Testament say? I'm talking about the apostles and the writers of the New Testament. They say these are the commandments of the Lord. They say what Paul wrote is Scripture. What is found in the Gospels is Scripture. The internal testimony, folks, is that this book is God's Word. Now, it is either that or it's just a joke book, one or the other. You cannot have a middle ground. You can't say it's a good book, but it's not God's Word. If it's not God's Word, the book is lying about itself. I choose to believe, of course, it's God's Word. Amen. All right, now, let's take a look at something else. The Bible had forewarned that there would come corruption of the Word of God. There would come those who would attempt to change and corrupt what God said. Let's go first to Jeremiah chapter 5. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 5. And verse, really sometimes, make a note of verses 25 to 31. We'll just read verses 30 and 31 tonight. It says, A wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. And the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. And what will you do in the end thereof? Now, what were these prophets doing? They weren't coming out and saying, Thus saith Baal, or thus saith Chemosh, or just thus saith uh, any of the other false gods. They were saying, Thus saith the Lord. That's why their prophecy was false. They claimed it was God's word, and it wasn't. But you know what? People loved it that way. They wanted to know what these prophets said. It sounded more smooth. It sounded more palatable than these old harsh things the true prophets of God were saying. Look over in this same book, Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23 and verse 21. The Lord says, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. Look on down in verse uh, 31 and 32. Behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that use their tongues and say, He saith. Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, and do tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their lightness. Yea, I sent them not, nor commanded them, therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. The Lord says, I am against those prophets who say, Thus saith the Lord, when I didn't speak that word. But there were many doing that, even in the Old Testament day. Now let's look over in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 2 and 17. 
2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 2 and verse 17, Paul says, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God speak we in Christ. Before Paul even finished writing his books, his 27 books that were in the New Testament, there were already people corrupting God's word. Now that Greek word there, corrupt, is interesting because it's usually used in connection with a trader or a merchant who corrupts his wares, the things he's offering the people, by adulteration, by adding something to it, and gets dishonest gain. For instance, it would be like uh, debasing coins, like happened in America in 1965. You know, we had the silver coins up to that time. They were valuable because there was silver in them. Well, in 65, they still look pretty much the same unless you look sideways. But if you look sideways, you notice, hey, a funny color there. It was copper. It wasn't silver anymore. But they still said it's worth 25 cents. But we knew something had happened. Now, that's what, what I'm saying. That's what the Greek word there means. They have corrupted the word of God. They have added something to it that's not God's pure word. And they have taken away things that are God's pure word. And what is left looks like God's word. I mean, even today, in a very practical sense, you can go into your Christian bookstore, and oh my, there are dozens, even scores of translations, and they all look like God's Word, and they all claim to be God's Word. They can't all be right, because they're different. But if you look on the cover, it'll say, Holy Bible, you know, God's Word, and, and it looks the same, but there's something funny going on, because it's a corruption of God's Word if the words are changed from what God actually said. Let's take a look here at another verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. Hold it. How did the serpent beguile Eve? What did the serpent say? What was the first thing he said in Genesis 3? He said, hath God said? See, he started questioning the word of God. Did God really say that for sure? And the tragedy was she didn't even know what he said, as we've studied before. She quoted what God said, and she added her own words to it, which corrupted it. She didn't have anything to stand on. But he says, I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ, for if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, whom ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. He's talking kind of in a derogatory sense there about the Corinthians who were accepting some people they oughtn't to accept. But now what's the point that he's making? Folks, if the words are different than God's word, it is another Jesus. It's another gospel. And if anybody, listen to me close now, if anybody receives any spirit out of it, it's going to be another spirit. Now that's a serious thing, I know, but you listen to me. The Bible says in Romans 10, 17, for faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. As we mentioned to you before, your faith is only as perfect as the word you hear. If you hear a corrupted word, at best you've got a corrupted faith. And Paul says it is possible for you to hear about 
someone called Jesus who is not the true Jesus at all. And it's possible for you to receive a spirit that's not the true Holy Spirit and to believe a gospel that's not the true gospel. How does it all happen, folks? He says it happened by the way the serpent beguiled Eve, by saying, you reckon these are really the words of God? Do you think God really said this? Or maybe he said just a little different. And then suddenly you've got a whole dangerous thing on your hands. Now, I want to dispel forever a completely false idea. There are so many Christian people, sincere people, maybe some of you here tonight, who have believed, at least up to this point, that the new translations are simply the same thing said in a different way. Some of you have believed that the new translations are the same or just easier to understand, kind of reworded, see, so you can comprehend them. Listen to me carefully. God did not give to men ideas or concepts. He gave them specific words. And if the words in your new translation are not translations of the word God said, it is not God's word. It's a paraphrase which means it's what a man thinks God was trying to say and rewording it in his own way. Now, of course, one of the very uh, infamous, as far as I'm concerned, paraphrases today is the Living Bible. Uh, in its early days, it always said it was a paraphrase in the front. Lately, they've been dropping that out, and a lot of people think it's a translation. All in the world, the Living Bible is, is what Kenneth Taylor thinks God was trying to say when he spoke. And I'll tell you, he's got a vivid imagination, as I could say to you by pointing out some specific verses. God does not need anybody telling mankind what he was trying to say. God wasn't trying to say anything. God said something. And you are sharp enough without somebody's intervention to read in your own language what God said, not what somebody says he said or thought he said. But the tragic thing about it is most, the Living Bible, at least in its early days, said it was a paraphrase. But most other, well, as far as I know, all other modern translations truly are paraphrases too, as we'll see in future weeks, because they are not based upon the right manuscripts. They're based upon corrupted manuscripts. Now, it ought to be obvious that God only wrote one Bible. I mean, he didn't write two or three. He didn't speak out of both sides of his mouth and give different revelations to different men. He spoke one consistent word. He spoke it, and it was written in two of the world's most perfect languages. Of course, Hebrew and Greek, Old Testament and New. In those original writings, folks, when Isaiah sat there or when the scribes sat there or when Moses sat there or however they did it, and wrote down God's word, in those original writings or in the identical copies to them, there is infinite and absolute perfection. Nothing erroneous about them whatsoever, and no human being will ever be able to duplicate that. And let me say to you, all other writings which deviate from those original manuscripts at all are not the Word of God. It's not what God said if some of God's words have been left out, changed, or if some words have been added. 
when words are added or subtracted, Bible inspiration is destroyed. Now, I want to give you tonight, in these last few minutes, a preview of the problem we're facing. I hope so far we've been able at least to build in your mind that the Bible, as far as its internal testimony, claims to be God's Word, not just another book. But now, why is it that we make such a distinction between the King James Version and all the other versions? It is because the text, I'm talking now about the Hebrew and the Greek text, upon which the new versions are based, differ from the text upon which the King James was based. We'll be talking about this in great detail in the weeks to come. But they differ to this degree. I just want to show you the nature of the problem. Over here on this side, I'm going to say we have the Textus Receptus. Now, don't get scared by that. All in the world that is is uh, a word that means the received text. Other words for that are ma majority text, traditional text, um, of course, received text, as I've already said in the English language, um, the Byzantine text, all of those are words that describe the same text. This, as the word majority text indicates, this is the vast majority of textual testimony out of the thousands of Hebrew and Greek texts and manuscripts and lectionaries and, and different things like that that are in existence, this is the vast majority. I'll tell you just how much of a majority in a moment. And this is the text upon which the King James is based. However, every new translation since the revised version of 1881 have been based on the same text. They are the Codex Vaticanus, Codex Sinaiticus, those two. Now, briefly, these two texts, Sinaiticus, as the word says, this was discovered in a monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai in uh, the early 1800s. The monks there in the Mount Sinai thought so much of this particular text, they were in the process of throwing it in the trash. When Dr. Tiskendorf arrived and rescued it, the monks knew it was not a reliable text. We'll go into this more in future weeks, but the text is marked over, over, over at least ten times by different hands of scribes trying to correct it until finally they gave up and were in the process of discarding it. The other is the Vaticanus. As the name implies, it was found in the Vatican. In the 1400s, nobody knows how it got there, where it came from really, or even who wrote it or anything. It also, as this one, is missing vast portions of the New Testament. But every, get this now, every translation since the revised version has been based upon these manuscripts, not the majority text. Say, Brother Seagraves, is that important? In the four Gospels alone, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in those four Gospels alone, the Codex Vaticanus differs 
from the text the King James is based on by omitting at least 2,877 words. It just outright leaves that many words out. It adds 536 words. It substitutes at least 935 words. It transposes 2,098 words and modifies 1,132 words. We're talking about now just in the four Gospels for a total of at least 7,578 differences from the majority text upon which the King James is based. Now, I've tried to impress upon you tonight that if as much as one word is added or taken away, it's polluted. I have just shown you that nearly 8,000 changes are made in the four Gospels alone. If you've got any translation in your hand tonight other than the King James, if it was not one of those translated before the King James, like the Bishop's Bible or uh, uh, the uh, uh, Wycliffe or those, if it's not one of those that predated, now seriously, after you're holding one of those big old things around tonight, your Bible differs in the four Gospels alone nearly 8,000 times at least from what the God, Word of God actually says. And the Sinaiticus is even worse than that. It totals nearly 9,000 differences in just those four Gospels. Now, we could get into the specific ones. Now, I mentioned a moment ago the ratio of manuscripts. You see, there are thousands of manuscripts in existence, ancient manuscripts from the 3rd century right on up until, of course, today. I mean, you know, the fairly recent manuscripts. You may be reading along in your new translation, and you will get to a place like Mark 16, 14 through 20. And number one, your Bible may just leave it out. Or it may have it, and then it may skip down a little piece and say another old ending, and then have a verse there. Or it may have it, all the verses, and it may have brackets around it with a footnote, and you look at the footnote, and the footnote says, these verses are not found in some ancient manuscripts. We're talking about these manuscripts here. Now, it would look to me like for us to begin casting doubt upon anything being God's Word, the evidence would need to be overwhelming. But it's just the opposite. Of the thousands of manuscripts in existence today, they are in agreement with the majority text upon which the King James is based by roughly 999 to 1. And the 1, of course, is represented by these two over here. What I'm telling you is this. If God was going to preserve his word, he would sure be doing it a funny way to just have it snatched from the trash can moments before it was destroyed forever by a man who really wasn't a Christian and then hold that one manuscript up as his word when thousands upon thousands agree in the testimony of the majority text. That'd be a funny thing indeed. Now, I want to try to, to bring this to a close here, but I do have a couple more things I want to share with you. There are only two concepts that have gained enough support within Christianity to challenge the belief in the inspiration of the Bible. 
Only two. They are, first of all, now, you may think, Brother Seagrass, I'll ever need this word. I want to show you something shocking in just a moment. First of all, rationalism. This, of course, a product of the German school of higher criticism in the 1700s. Rationalism. There are three aspects to rationalism when they approach, is this God's word? The first aspect is that under rationalism, there is the belief that only the mysteries of the faith were inspired. Not the whole Bible, just the mysteries of the faith. Number two, there was the belief that the Bible was inspired only in matters of faith and practice. For instance, the Bible wasn't inspired when it said that the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. I mean, obviously, that's just a myth and a story. The Bible wasn't inspired when it said the earth, the sun stood still and the moon stood still for a whole day in the valley of Ajalon so Joshua and his men could defeat the enemy. Obviously, that's just a story. The sun, I mean, the, the Bible wasn't inspired when it said the... Uh, uh, sundial, the measurement on it went back 10 degrees for Hezekiah to prove to him that God was going to spare him 15 years. Obviously, that's just a figment of imagination. But in matters of faith and practice, the Bible's inspired. Of course, what that's saying is the Bible really isn't inspired at all because, again, as we said a while ago, it claims to be the infallible inspired Word of God. But, and you probably don't have any trouble with those two, but now the, what I want you to see next is this. The third prong of rationalism is this that the Bible is inspired in the thoughts or the concepts, but not in the words. You remember what I said to you a moment ago? God did not inspire ideas or concepts or thoughts. He spoke words. Now, see, if we believe this idea of rationalism, that, that God only gave thoughts or concepts, then it would be up to us to express what God was trying to say. And it would become not the word of God, but man's word about God, which is a vast difference. This, that prong of rationalism is with us today because there are honest, sincere people, Christian people, who will tell you, well, my Bible, you know, I like my Bible because it's so easy to read. You know, I was talking to a, a minister friend the other day. He was astounded that I took a strong stand for the King James Version. And he loves his new translation. He just gets so much out of it. Well, now, of course, it doesn't say what the King James says, but, you know, it says the same thing, just in different words. That's rationalism. It says God did not inspire words. He inspired thoughts or concepts. Now, the other thing, besides rationalism, that gained a foothold, and this one is will really speak to, I think, is mysticism. Say, well, my brother Seagraves, I said, I never had nothing to do with that because I don't use a crystal ball. Now, wait a minute. Listen carefully. Mysticism is variously identified as spiritual insight, Christian consciousness, or the witness of the Spirit. Here's what it says. It implies that a Christian has something within himself to which he must subject every external revelation. Now, let me make perfectly clear what I mean. And I'm going to use this for an example, although I don't want to embarrass at all the person who mentioned this to me, but this is what I'm talking about. 
If a person says, well, you know, I think I'll be able to determine which is the Word of God and which isn't by the witness of the Spirit in me, what's he doing? He, then, is setting in judgment on the Word of God. He's saying, I will decide what is God's Word and what isn't God's Word by the way I feel about it. And that's mysticism. See? Now, that mysticism is an ancient problem, as is rationalism. But both of them have come down to us today. And there are many Christians who feel that the only way you can know for sure what God said is to see if you feel right about it. Oh, that's so dangerous. So dangerous. Now, one more thing before I close. This one also is a current problem, especially in some circles. Have you ever heard this? Well, you see, the writers of the Bible were limited by their language and their vocabulary. And so they had to describe what they saw to the best of their ability, but they weren't able to describe it exactly because they'd never seen anything like that before. Now, think with me for a moment. The book of Revelation. There's a whole spate of interpretations today of the book of Revelation. You will find people saying that the book of Revelation has spitfire airplanes, nuclear bombs, uh, whatever you want to imagine. And the people, and I'm talking now, folks, about sincere, fundamental people. Even spirit-filled people will say, well, you know, John was talking here when he mentioned this scorpion with a sting in its tail. He was talking really about, you know, the modern airplane with the bomber in the back. And, you know, it said it had a man's face with a face painted on the front. That's what he was talking about. He just didn't know how to say it because he'd never seen an airplane. Now, I don't know if, if, if you've ever heard that or not, but this is predominant today in many books that are published. What are we saying, folks? Now, see, that sounds good. Because immediately we'll say, Woo! Well, we know how to interpret the book of Revelation now. But you know what you're doing? You're doing something so serious you don't even realize it. You're saying that the writers, the men who pen God's words, labored under limitations of language and vocabulary. What are we saying then? We're saying it's man's word. He's doing the best he can to say what God wanted him to say, but bless his poor heart, he just can't say it all because he didn't know it all. We're saying it's not God's word at all, but man's word trying to describe what God wanted to say. See, there's a lot more to this than meets the eye. And um, I want to say to you that God, I really believe, worked providentially to develop the Hebrew and Greek languages until they were fit vehicles for him to convey his message to men. In the writing of the Scripture, the Holy Spirit did not have to struggle with the limitations of human language. The languages that the writing was done in were perfectly adapted to what God wanted to say. When the Word of God says, when John says he saw scorpions with stings and stuff, that's exactly what he saw in the vision. Brother Dushevsky. They're all... Um, the Greek text. Okay, now uh, we're going to, I'm going to stop here for tonight. We'll continue next week, but do you at this point have any questions you'd want to ask about anything we've said so far? Sister Becky? Uh, we're not really about, we're about, but some of the things that you said, I think, are 
Well, of course, that person has probably not really read it and studied it, because if he did, he'd begin to see applications to every situation of life. But God said, but the Word of God says, Thy Word is forever settled in heaven. That means in the old days, in these days, in the future days. It's for all days and all generations. He will preserve it forever, he said. Right. You Sister Dushevsky? Um, That's right. Okay, now that is something we will get into in the future, but yes, it's true. We don't have any original manuscripts left now. The manuscripts that were originally written were copied, and the originals were used until, let me just, if I can briefly give you an example of this, uh, if you have a, well, say a Bible. Maybe some of you have been Christians for years. How many Bibles have you gone through? See? Now, some of you have had the same Bible for 50 years. What does that mean? That means you didn't value it very highly. You didn't read it, see? I mean, unless it's just all in rags and everything now. But what I'm saying is this. The books that you value, you read the life out of them. You're always thumbing through them, see? They get dirty. They get tattered. The same way with the, with the original manuscripts. They copied over them. We'll get next week maybe into how the Lord commanded them to care for them and to uh, make copies for the kings and that. They would copy them over. Well, naturally, in the use, the originals began to wear away. And the Jewish priest had such a high regard for the word, they would not allow an old tattered copy to be around. When it got to the point they could not read it, they would bury them. And only after, of course, they'd made new copies with all of these stringent regulations that I said to you a while ago, how they made the copies, counting all the letters, making sure the same number of the letters in the alphabet were there. If there was one mistake found, the whole thing was chucked. Very tedious way they did it. Was there next another question? remember that God said he would preserve them. And uh, in the New Testament, we read in Romans 3, 2, that he committed them to the Jews. The oracles were committed to them. They were in their safekeeping. In fact, they still are today as far as the Hebrew Old Testament is concerned. The Hebrew Old Testament, let me say again, this may help. The Hebrew Old Testament that we have today is virtually identical, even to the division of the Psalms, the way they're divided up and everything, to um, what the Jews use, even today, the Orthodox Jews. See, they have preserved them very meticulously down through the years. And um, we had this come up at the General Conference this year. It was an interesting thing, and I know what the time's going by now, but um, I appreciated the fact we had a resolution come on the floor to uh, require people who were involved, like in our Bible schools and, and colleges and that, to state yearly their belief in the infallible inspired word of god and so forth and um, we got into a little debate in fact i said a couple words there on the floor about this because somebody wanted to say um, that uh, it was the inspired word of god as found in the oldest manuscripts see well when we say oldest manuscripts we're talking about 
these two right here, which are the oldest by just a handful of years, but are by far the most corrupt. Now, you say, how could that be, Brother Seagraves? It looks to me like oldest would be best. No, oldest does not necessarily mean best. The reason is this. What did I say to you a while ago? If you've got a Bible that's 50 years old and it still looks like new, what does that mean? It means you didn't value it very highly. You never read it very much. But if you're like me, I've been through several Bibles since I started preaching because I'm, I'm constantly looking at them. All right, now, these two manuscripts here are a few years older than the, I didn't even write down here the Alexandrinus uh, text, which is on this side, a few years older, but are unused. The monks, remember, in Mount Sinai were fixing to throw them away. They knew they were corrupt. They didn't use them. They scribbled all over, as I said, ten hands trying to correct them. They were going to discard them altogether because they knew they were no good. The same way with the Vaticanus, and these two agree amazingly. It leaves out vast sections of Scripture. But it was on the shelf simply because of its worthlessness. It was not being used. It was just laid up there in a nook or a cranny. So you have to get into your mind, and we will get into this in future weeks in great detail, you have to get into your mind the fact that um, the manuscripts, as they were used, as they were highly valued and copied over and over again, they began to wear out. And then, of course, finally they were discarded. They had to be, Sister Pierce. Yes, there's a big difference because he is expounding on the Word. He is not saying what I'm saying to you now are the words of God. He is explaining it to you. But these, these translations say this is God's Word. This is what God actually said. They were a preacher not saying that. Now, in other words, a preacher, what he does would be roughly the equivalent of a commentary. He's commenting on it, but the commentary doesn't claim to be God's Word. See? Okay? Quickly, any other questions? Okay. If not, we're going to continue next week. Let's stand together and we'll receive our offering tonight.